So Jay, are any of the Xavier School teachers credentialed? Let me think, Miles. Well, Emma Frost probably is, or at least was at some point. And I'm pretty sure Spider-Man used to be a high school science teacher, although he was technically Jean Grey School faculty, not Xavier School. Wait, Spider-Man taught at the Jean Grey School? But he's not a mutant, is he? He is not a mutant. He is, however, an actual teacher, which, as we've established, is more qualification than most of his colleagues brought to the table. How did that whole thing work out? Well, let's see, uh, Sauron and Stegron. Wait a sec. I know who Sauron is, but who's Stegron? A Stegosaurus guy. Huh. Thus the name. No, no, that's just his last name. He's Dr. Vincent Stegron. And he ended up a Stegosaurus. Kinda. Stegron remade the formula that had turned Kurt Connors into the lizard, but with Stegosaurus tissue instead of lizard tissue and turned into the same general variety of monster. And then he just, what, marauded? No, he wants to build a dinosaur army. I, honestly, I can't really fault him for that. So, is that his thing? Just a big dinosaur dude? Basically, yeah. He's really only got the standard dinosaur power set. Right. Size, strength, semi-armored body... Mind control... WHAT?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 276 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to the end of our long international nightmare. That big run of Excalibur fill-ins, where the book didn't really have much of an identity and there were some good things but also some very bad things? That's done! We have a regular writer again! I was going to make a really depressing political joke, but I decided not to because it pretty much can be taken as read at this point. Yeah, there is that. Speaking of things you can read and things we just talked about before we dive into this whole Excalibur thing, if you've been on the internet in the last few years and you've seen a panel where Sauron is yelling about how he doesn't want to cure cancer and he just wants to turn people into dinosaurs, yeah, that is from that story. Listeners, if you have not read the Spider-Man and the X-Men six-issue series, it is phenomenal and I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's ridiculous and lovely. It's really great. Um, it puts it puts one of my longest-running weird favorite characters front and center, too, which is Ernst. Ernst is great, I agree. Ernst is, is, is a very sweet weirdo. Um, there's also, uh, Sh- Shark Girl also totally gets to save the day during the dinosaur story. I also love Shark Girl. I love basically everybody in that book. Then you have one more thing in common with both Sauron and Stegron. <laughs> That's true. So, Warren Ellis... I think I first became familiar with Warren Ellis back in college when almost everybody we knew was reading Transmetropolitan. I guess we actually started that back in high school. It just finished when we were in college. Great, very dark, bitter sci-fi series, very funny, and very different than what we see here. So for me, every time I read Ellis and it's not Transmet, there's a part of me that has to take a sec to adjust. Well, Ellis is one of those writers who has a very, very legible voice. He's pretty good at writing to genre, but it's going to come across as a Warren Ellis book, and especially as Warren Ellis dialogue to some extent, no matter what. That's going to ramp way, way, way up when Pete Wisdom gets on the team. But for now, he's sort of somewhere in the middle. Yeah, uh, I will say the characters have much more distinct voices than they have in quite a while, which I appreciate. But there's a trade-off, which is that Ellis's grasp of continuity, or maybe how much Ellis gives a shit about continuity— leaves a bit to be desired, especially in this story. Yeah, that's a complaint that's come up a lot about his run, that we've made about his run preemptively, in fact. And it's one that we're probably going to come back to a lot. Honestly, I had forgotten that he wrote the Soul Sword trilogy. And it's kind of surprising to me that he did, because I had remembered this. I mean, and I I still, I, I'm not a huge fan of this this story. And... It's really interesting watching a writer whose most who whose work I've mostly read in contexts where it's it's creator-owned books catching his stride on an ongoing superhero series. I mean, he's done that he's done that in other other books as well, but most of the Ellis that I've read has been either creator-owned or has been when he was pretty much a big enough deal that he could come in and do whatever the hell he wanted to. 
This is not so much that, and it's really interesting. It is, yeah. So we'll get to the specifics of both his writing style and of continuity later. One thing I do want to talk about here, we've mentioned that he writes Kitty Pride as a lot older. That'll come up later because she is in a sexual relationship with a much older man, that being Pete Wisdom. We'll deal with that as it comes up. The other thing that only comes up a little here is that he writes both Britannic and Megan as very specifically being mutants. Which they're not. I mean, Megan, you could kind of make an argument. Like, continuity has gone back and forth a little on that, whether she's fully magical or she has mutant powers that, like, make her magical. But yeah, Captain Britain has never once in his beefy British life been any sort of mutant. Like, yes, his twin sister is a mutant, but the X gene is weird, so he doesn't have to have that. Like, he's got magic stuff. Well, and they're fraternal twins. It's not like it's his identical twin. Oh, right, yes, of course, fraternal twins. That's that's what I meant. But, uh, yeah, so... We just have to deal with that. As for the soul sword, well, that's most of what we're going to be talking about this time. All right. So it's been a pretty long time since we've talked much about Excalibur, or at least much about it out of context of of mostly Douglock, honestly. And it's been a sort of weird liminal era. So let's sort of go back to the roots because we're, we're going to be looking at and, and and sort of looking back at some of the much, much earlier stories here. Not just about Excalibur, but about Ilyana. But to start off with Excalibur, they are still based on Muir Isle in Scotland, where they've been helping Professor Xavier and Moira McTaggart try to cure the mostly mutant-targeting legacy virus. Two members of the team are mutants and former X-Men. Those are Nightcrawler and Shadowcat. And they joined the team when they thought that the rest of the X-Men were dead, but they were actually in Australia um, they've been been hanging around ever since. Now, back when they were on the X-Men, Kitty had a best friend who was heavily, heavily coded as her girlfriend, and that was Ilyana Rasputin. Ilyana is complicated. See episodes 19, 107, and 230 of Jane Miles Explain the X-Men for details on that. But here's the short version. She got sucked into a hell dimension called Limbo for a decade or so when she was a kid, became a demon sorceress, and fought her way out using magic and using a sword she made from her very soul, at which point she came back to the exact moment she left, but way older. She then gradually became more and more corrupt because of her link to Limbo, to that hell dimension, but finally ended up saving the world using magic, which also meant that she'd never been to Limbo in the first place, and she de-aged back to her young pre-Limbo self, um, so she was, was about six at that point. Then she caught the legacy virus and died. Now, she had died one time before that, and that time that she died, which was because of the Beyonder, and right when she de-aged, at both of those occasions, Eliana's soul sword went to Kitty. It sort of teleported to her and bonded to her. Because they're girlfriends. Because they're girlfriends. The last time we saw the Soul Sword, it was left with a kinda okay demon guy named Darkoth in Limbo. Darkoth used to be one of Ben Grimm's buddies, but then Doctor Doom replaced all of his bones with magical metal and surgically altered him to look like a demon from Lotvarian myth, and he died twice. Comics, everybody. But all that stuff we just said about Ilyana? Yeah, this story's just gonna ignore most of it. So let's just dive straight into Excalibur number 83, Bend Sinister. All of the issues of the Soul Sword trilogy have fairly delightfully pretentious names, some of which are more misleading than others. This one, Bend Sinister, is most likely a reference to the Nabokov novel, which in turn takes its name from the heraldic charge. Uh, Bend Sinister is a diagonal line across your, your coat of arms um, that goes in a specific direction, um, specifically from upper sinister corner to lower dexter corner, um, as you are facing the same direction as it. And... It does not have any bearing on Mr. Sinister, which is kind of an iffy title choice, or which makes kind of an iffy title choice in this era when Sinister is is kind of front and center again. But that's okay. It sounds really cool, so I'm willing to forgive it. This issue is written, as we said, by Warren Ellis. It's penciled by Terry Dodson, inked by W.C. Karani, and colored by Joe Rosas. And this is some of Dodson's earliest work for Marvel, and I actually really like Terry Dodson's style here more than I like his later stuff. He has a habit of being kind of cheesecakey, and that rubs me the wrong way. And while a lot of the characters are sexy here, they're not over-the-top sexy. Even when Kitty turns into evil sexy Kitty, which she does, it's not so bad. I think he's drawing more variation between faces than we see in some of his later work. 
That's true, yeah. And that, of course, could have a lot to do with the inks. It's always hard to tell without seeing the pencils before inks. True that. Um, on the covers, we have a very familiar artist, and specifically one who has very familiarly drawn a whole lot of magic, and that is Bill Sienkiewicz. Oh, yeah, the cover is gorgeous. It's this hyper-foreshortened image of a soul armor-clad shadow cat pulling the soul sword out of her chest, and, like, her hair is merging with the scribbly shadows in the background, and it's all creepy and horrific, and Sienkiewicz just freaking kills it. I remember being really disappointed when I first read these that he didn't do the interior art. It's a hell of a contrast, going from his sketchy, surreal style to Terry Dodson's very inviting, soft, colorful, cartoony style. Yeah, um, it's, 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 it's a little dis- I, I think it's still actually kind of disappointing. Dodson's not a ba- bad artist, but tonally, I think someone who was working more in Sienkiewicz, Spain would have been much better suited to this story. Yeah, that I would agree with, especially since we get a different penciler for every single issue. It makes it feel pretty inconsistent. That's an issue, I think, that is common in this era of Excalibur, is that it's just not served well by Marvel-style Marvel superhero art at this point. It doesn't fit the stories tonally, and the characters, in general, aren't ones that really work necessarily all that well with that. Yeah, although I do really like the penciler for the second issue, but again, we'll get to that. As far as the plot... Well, Kitty Pride is having one of her, what the narration calls, outsider moods, realizing, you know, she spent most of her life as just a normal girl in Illinois, and this is not normal stuff. And this gives us the opportunity to see the way she sees the world with those normal eyes, the way she sees her Excalibur world, and I especially appreciate what the narration tells us when she looks at Douglock. She knows what Douglock is. A fusion of the techno-organic alien warlock and the memories of murdered mutant Doug Ramsey. But sometimes he looks awfully like a dead boy filled with wires. Sometimes Ellis just exactly nails a phrase, and I think that's one of them. It's just so striking. Yeah. Like I said, I don't think he's at his best here, but when he's on, he's really, really on. Well, and the dialogue is often pretty good too, though. Like... Kurt shows up, Nightcrawler shows up to cheer Kitty up, and their dialogue is delightful, as he tells her, Okay, lecture over. Now cheer up, or we kill you. You are probably my best friend, Fuzzy. You know that? There was any doubt? Now come on, mail call! It's not just mail call, it's fashion call. Because Bishop has showed up to drop off a bunch of research equipment from the U.S., but also a bunch of boxes of clothing that Jubilee packed up for her friend Kitty. Because as you may recall, Jubilee's been shopping with an unlimited budget with Monet back in Uncanny X-Men. Oh, but she specifically brings up that Warren paid for these. Ah, okay. Well, maybe he felt really guilty after that conversation they had in the same issue. I suppose it's possible. It's also reasonably possible that she just stole his credit cards. Yeah, this is Jubilee. But Kitty suddenly starts acting pretty out of character. She grabs the boxes and just starts ignoring everybody who's trying to talk to her and phases through the wall to her bedroom. She's being very snooty. I mean, outside her mood, sure, but come on, Kitty. I mean, you don't come between Kitty and terrible outfits, Miles. Well, that is perhaps a valid point. But she's still being a little excessively shitty. Even talking to herself, she calls Jubilee a little cow. And as she tries on the clothes Jubilee got her, she takes a knife and cuts them apart to sex them up. Like, she makes the skirt shorter, she pulls the shirt open so her bra is visible, and she just looks really mean and haughty as she looks in the many, many mirrors in her bedroom. Like, the art is really selling that she is a capital B bad, capital G girl suddenly. And we all know that nothing ever good comes of being abruptly sexy on Muir Island. Right? We've totally seen evil sexy Moira. And so Kitty, who's getting darker and darker, walks past a whole bunch of mirrors. Like I said, there are a ton of mirrors in this room. I'm guessing because she's had dealings with vampires and so she figures you can never be too careful. Oh, I just sort of assumed it was their makeover montage hallway. That could be. That could be. There is a lot of fashion on Muir Isle at this point in, in continuity. 
But there is a beautiful trilogy of panels here. As we see Kitty's boots walking in the foreground, in the background, there are different reflections of her in all of these mirrors. And in each reflection, she's wearing different parts of Ilyana Rasputin's old soul armor from back in her dark child days. And in one of the panels, she's got the soul sword sticking out of her midsection. It's chilling. Uh, to remind everyone, that's how you get access to the soul sword. You literally just pull it out of your own body. It's, it's, she, she didn't get, you know, soul stabbed or anything. Exactly. It's supposed to come out from there. And Kitty starts going through Moira McTaggart's bedroom, like pulling out her dead ex-husband's clothing and trying them on and smoking Moira's secret stash of cigarettes and just being a total judgmental jerk. Well, and also massively violating Moira's privacy, as Moira points out when she shows up and sees Kitty going through her stuff. And Moira is very much in stern grown-up mode. Like, honestly, I think she handles this very, very well. But Kitty just stubs her cigarette out on Moira's arm and then socks her across the room. Like, it's it's genuinely disturbing because we know Kitty pride, and we know that while Kitty can be kind of caustic and angry, like, this is not how Kitty behaves, especially not to somebody like Moira. She definitely has, has a temper, but she also usually doesn't get into completely unprovoked physical altercations. That said, Moira, this is what it's like to deal with someone who's evil and sexy. Like, I know you're over it, but just so you're aware what people had to deal with. Now, Kurt hears the fight and goes to help. But there's a problem. See, when Nightcrawler teleports, he doesn't just disappear from one place and appear in another. He briefly travels through another dimension. So in that regard, his teleportation is a little bit like the way Ilyana's used to work. It's just that she would spend time in limbo, and he just gets a flash of fire and brimstone, which is why it smells bad when he teleports. Yay? It's a dimension of pure stink. Uh, not just pure stink. Right now, it's a dimension of pure stink and a very, very evil wizard by the name of Gravemoss. I kind of love Gravemoss's character design because he's basically just a slim but muscular dude with very long hair, lots of tattoos, and a pair of tight designer jeans and no shirt or shoes. He looks so astonishingly douchey and also clearly magical. He actually reminds me a little of Chris Angel. I like Chris Angel somewhat better, but only somewhat. See, I was going to say he looks like a sexified 90s version of Bob from Twin Peaks. Oh, that's way scarier. And to be fair, he is a legitimately scary character. Okay, so he's half Bob from Twin Peaks and half Chris Angel and all Grave Moss. So what does Grave Moss want? Why is he waylaying Kurt in the stinky dimension? Well, he goes ahead and possesses Kurt. Grave Moss just literally jumps down Kurt's throat inside his body. He's possessed. That seems like a really inconvenient way to do that. But it's very stylish. Because, Chris Angel, you've been mind-freaked. All right, so so that's what Bob Angel is up to, but why, why does he want this? What is, what is he hoping to get out of this other than getting to run around as the coolest dude on Excalibur? Well, we find out what Grave Moss is up to in someplace entirely different, that being Cairo. Because Day Tripper, Amanda Sefton is not just a sorceress, she also has a side gig, or possibly main gig, as an airplane stewardess. So she's currently in Cairo, and she randomly runs into her mother, Margali Sardos, the sorceress. Now, for those of you who um, are, are, are scratching your, your head at these names, Margali is Amanda's mother and Kurt's adoptive mother. She is Romani, she is a sorceress, and she once built a an incredibly detailed replica of Dante's Inferno just to guilt trip Kurt. She sure did. She's not a good mom. No, no. But we did learn a little bit more about her recently. In Excalibur 76 and 77, we learned that the winding way, the sorceress path that she practices tends to have some people be successful sometimes and not successful other times. Basically, you go between being powerful and not powerful. And right now, she is not powerful. I realized while I was reading these issues that I very specifically picture The Winding Way as a game of Candyland. Well, now I'm picturing it that way. I always wanted to hang out in Candyland. It was such a compelling setting that we got to learn so little about. Right? The food in it all looks really awesome. 
It does. And like, what's going on in that swamp? What kind of culture's there? What's the deal with the monarchy? There are all these different monarchs. Anyway, apparently the deal is that Grave Moss is currently ahead of Margali on the Winding Way. He's a very, very evil wizard, and he wants to get the Soul Sword so he can basically just kill everybody and take over the world. So Margali asks Amanda to make sure that doesn't happen. Because Margali never, ever, ever has a secret agenda. Never, ever. So let's go from Cairo to, I don't know, London, where a sorceress named Shrill, there are a lot of sorceresses in this story, wakes up. Shrill has been in agony because, okay, I'm just going to try to say this straightforwardly. Her eyeball is made of a metal called soul steel, and apparently that's the same metal as Ilyana Rasputin's soul sword. And now that the soul sword is coming to be a thing again because of Kitty... It's having a sympathetic reaction with Shrill's eyeball, and thus Shrill is in constant agony. So whenever the Soul Sword is used, Shrill hurts a whole bunch. That used to be a big deal in the Ilyana days, and it's starting to be a big deal again. I should note that we've never heard of Shrill before, nor will we hear of her again. We will not. My theory is that eventually, after this story, she just figured out, wait, I had an eyeball transplanted in. Maybe I can just take this horrible vulnerability out of my face and replace it with, like, I don't know, a normal prosthetic eye or a golf ball or something. Yeah, all it really seems to do is react to the soul sword. I think at one point she uses it to, like, see some magical stuff. But, dude, this is the Marvel Universe. There are, like, 50 different things you can get on Black Friday that'll do that for you. Yeah, I was going to say, there's probably a contact lens for that. So this is a break with continuity. Previously, the soul sword was pulled by Ilyana directly from her own soul, made physical using Ilyana's own magic. It's not even made of metal at all, even though it turned into a metal-like material. So that's just not true. I don't know, maybe Warren Ellis or Scott Lobdell, who came up with this idea, played the old Exalted role-playing game 10 years before it actually came out, and so they just really like Death Knights who used Soul Steel. So this bears some discussion because this is also relevant to the way Kitty is using the Soul Sword when she threatens Mara McTaggart. She is threatening to kill her with it, which shouldn't be possible based on the way it worked for Ilyana. Yeah, because Ilyana could only cut through magical stuff with it. Like, she would stab a person, and the person would be okay, but the evil magics inside them would be disrupted. It also works on brood embryos. No one's quite sure why. I guess they're evil magic. They're evil magic aliens. And that takes us to Excalibur number 84, Evil Magic Aliens. I mean, Dark Adapted Eye. This is another novel reference, and this one specifically is to a crime drama by Ruth Rendell writing as Barbara Vine. It's not clear from the phrasing, but the title refers to an eye that has adapted to the dark, and so can make out more detail, not a dark eye which has adapted. Sounds pretty badass either way, honestly. Anyway, eyes aside, this issue was written by Warren Ellis, penciled by Derek Gross, inked by Bill Anderson, and colored by Joe Roses. And, man, I love the art team on this. I do too, right? Like, everybody's got this awesome, gigantic, curly Q hair, and, like, there's this random Art Nouveau splash page of shrill casting spells, even though the story doesn't really justify it, and everything just looks beautiful and, un and unnecessarily elaborate. I would have loved to have seen more textured, watercolory colors with this. I think that would have done a really, really good job and, and made a lot of progress toward bridging this cover and interior art, but it'll do. Um... And it starts, as the issues in this do, with a blatant continuity error. To wit, years ago, a girl called Ilyana Rasputin had a sword that drove her mad. Uh, correction, everything about that is wrong. It didn't drive her mad. The sword was actually kind of a good thing. God damn it. Yeah, yeah. So, remember how we said that, that Warren Ellis just doesn't know any of the continuity? Yeah. He's, he's breaking all of the, the already kind of shaky Soul Sword continuity here. Now, now, unfortunately for Moira, Kitty's got the Soul Sword back out, and she's decided she's going to use it to kill Moira, which again, shouldn't be possible, but oh well. I guess this is also unfortunately for Shrill, because all of her planning is, is now getting interrupted by another Soul Sword headache. It's really rough to be Shrill. If only there were some very simple way she could take care of this problem and not have to deal with it anymore. I mean, maybe eventually there will be, but first there's going to be another possessed people fight. As Kitty postures around, a Nightcrawler, or rather Grave Moss possessed Nightcrawler, pops in to uh, see what's up. And Okay, so 
Grave Moss, I, I appreciate this detail because Grave Moss's overly purple caption narration is literally purple. Kurt Wagner isn't in here anymore. I run this body now. I'll introduce myself once I have that sword. I can see it now. Pleased to meet you. I'm Grave Moss, and I'm going to be the most powerful magician on Earth. And here's what I did on my summer vacation. I mean, he doesn't, like, say that to Kitty. He just sort of says that to himself because mustache-twirling villain, to be fair, without a mustache. But you have to narrate to yourself all the time. It's funny that you took him in that direction because I kind of imagined him talking like Peter Lorre. I feel like there are many paths to the Buddha, Jay. Very few of them involve grave moss. Maybe none. <sighs> because it's still sort of a little bit Halloween season, I'm now thinking about my favorite Peter Lorre movie, which is Roger Corman's The Raven. I'm going to go on a brief tangent here because, listeners, if you haven't seen this, you should because it's amazing. Roger Corman did a series of adaptations of, of increasingly imaginative and loose adaptations of Edgar Allan Poe stories, culminating in The Raven, where he recycled most of the props and costumes from the previous ones, and whose similarities to its, its uh, source text basically stop at the fact that there's a raven in it and someone misses a person named Lenore. Um, but the important thing about it is that in addition to a very, very young, very wooden Jack Nicholson, it stars... The phenomenal trifecta of Vincent Price, Boris Karloff, and Peter Lorre. Jay, is that the one that has a big wizard fight in it? That is the one with the wizard fight, yes. That's the one that Allison and I were really, really obsessed with. You know, I never actually saw that. I should remedy that immediately. You should. It's amazing. It's, it's, and it's, it's one of those rare movies where Vincent Price gets to be a good guy, but where he's also just visibly having so much fun. That's awesome. But anyway, uh, wizard fights. Excalibur. Right, right. Back, so we're sort sort of on topic. See, wizard fights. It is. A, it's actually a very, very Excalibur feeling movie in general. I think. Nice. Anyway, um, just for the record, Evil Kitty has fantastic hair. It's so good. Yeah, this art team. They do a lot of things right. I think what they do best is hair. Now. Unfortunately, her fantastic hair, or I guess fortunately, her fantastic hair does not protect her from what's basically a Vulcan nerve pinch, or its rough equivalent, from Britannic, who's finally getting his personality back. I'm so proud of him. I really appreciate that Moira comments on that, and Britannic's excuse is, oh yeah, you know, I've been back for a while now, so I'm feeling more normal. I like that Ellis just doesn't even dignify the whole Britannic personality shift with some kind of big continuity explanation. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of the silver lining of Ellis's tendency to ditch continuity. That sometimes you end up with the soul sword bullshit, but sometimes you also end up with just not having to deal with Britannic, and that's great. Yay. Now, as Mora, Brian, and Megan take an unconscious kitty down to the lab, Grave Moss Crawler makes a grab for the sword, which immediately flies back into Kitty. Too bad, buddy. There's this awesome panel of Grave Moss Crawler, like, wagging his tail in frustration. The body language that Grave Moss in Nightcrawler's body has is consistently both terrifying and delightful. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Gross and Anderson draw possessed Nightcrawler so well. I talked about this with Iceman and Emma Frost pretty recently, but... Artists who can draw a character exactly on model and still have it be entirely clear that they're not themselves are great. Oh, God, yes. And again, Gross, Gross just does that very consistently in this issue. So, disgusted with the general friendliness around him, Grave Moss Crawler then heads outside to cling to a cliff face and be dramatic until... Nightcrawler's girlfriend, Amanda, shows up and ruins the mood, and not only not only does she ruin his brooding, but apparently she is there specifically to stop Grave Moss, and he can't have that, so he promptly drops her off a cliff, and there's a really bad pun involved, which I am not going to dignify with coverage. Fair enough. Back at the med lab, Moira and Xavier are going over sensor recordings of Ilyana's death, and oh boy, speaking of continuity. Yeah, so... The important thing about this is that Charles' sensors back at the Xavier Mansion medbay are attuned to lesbian vibes, which Charles mistakes for magic. 
And as 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 he sees the soul sword pass from Ilyana to Kitty as Ilyana dies. Okay, so here's the thing with all of that, except for the lesbian part, which is totally accurate. He mentions that the sword hasn't been seen since Ilyana was de-aged, but it totally was. Like we mentioned earlier, it came to Kitty Pride specifically in a plot point that should be really relevant to this story. And also, if it was supposed to transfer from dying Kid Ilyana to Kitty, which is the implication here, how would that even work? Because Kid Ilyana, her whole deal was that she never went to Limbo in the first place, that that part of her history was rewritten. She should have zero connection to the Soul Sword. This is wrong in multiple ways simultaneously. That's our Warren. Surely is Warren Kenneth Ellis the third. They don't really get to delve into into this mystery any further, and, and Ellis doesn't have to figure out the continuity of it any, any further, because the fire alarm goes off, because Grave Moss Crawler straight up set Duglock on fire. What the hell, man? Seriously. That's not cool. That's that's like that's like an extra level of being a dick. That's just gratuitous. And then everybody's all worried that they can't help Doug Locke because if they even t- touch him the slightest bit, they'll be infected with a techno-organic virus? Like, what? Okay, I get not wanting to do all of the Soul Sword research because that goes back like a decade. But it was literally just the Phalanx Covenant. Like, last week. And speaking of it being the Phalanx Covenant last week, I'd like to point out that Muir Isle was very thoroughly blown all to hell in Final Sanction. It seems totally fine here. Do they just have, like, a really, really good cleanup crew? Did Damage Control show up? Maybe this this whole story will turn out to retroactively been a dream, or to have taken place in another timeline, or something. Maybe. This is so weird, because I love so many aspects of the writing. The characters are delightful. Grave Moss and Shrill are both bananas, and I love them. But the continuity stuff is just absolutely terrible, and I am so conflicted and confused. I really dislike the continuity stuff. I feel like when you're coming into something that has that much history attached, I think it's fine to take an in. in your own direction, but I also think that there's a degree of respect to precedence that goes with finding something new to play with or finding something that hasn't been the center of a story that's very similar to the story that you're telling in multiple ways, but different to break. Like, I I, I know that Marvel Wikio wasn't around at this point, but... This is literally what assistant editors are for. They are the person who you send to gather up the reference material and send it to the writer and make sure that the writer got it. Alas. I mean, they do a lot of other stuff too, but that's one of the things they tend to do. So anyway, Kitty wakes up uh, and she's herself again, only to be confronted by Shrill, who has used the fleck of soul steel in her brooch to track the soul sword to Muir Isle. She can't kill the sword but she can kill its holder because we all saw how well that worked last round, I guess. Well, she does mention that she tried to take it from Darkoth, that guy with the metal skeleton you were talking about before in Limbo. And the caption says that's a as-of-yet-untold tale. Uh, in 2019, it is still as-of-yet-untold. Oh man, maybe it involved um, the X-Men who are in space. I'm going to assume so. My favorite clones. Well, having having taken out the rest of Excalibur when they went up to see what was going on with Duglock, Grave Moss Crawler shows up to quote-unquote help. Uh, he is not there to be helpful, and Kitty is starting to catch on to the fact that this is not Nightcrawler, partly because he calls her Catherine, and partly because he's got a really scary face, and also he drools a lot, and I bet it gets really gross and crusty in his fur. Oh yeah, no, I'm just saying, like, I have to eat so much more neatly since I've been growing my beard back out longer. You have to be super careful. Well, his his... Facial fur doesn't seem like it's very long, but it still seems like it's long. Like, I mean, like, like, like when the cat drools. Yeah, it smells a little funny sometimes. That's because she eats cat food. That's probably related. And that takes us to Excalibur number 85, Edge of Night. And in Edge of Night, we make the transition from novels to daytime soap operas. Uh, Like Dark Adapted Eye, Edge of Night was a crime drama, and it aired for something like 30 years and had a phenomenally high fatality rate, even by soap opera standards. I have fictional fatality rate. I don't know that anyone actually died making it. This isn't Spider-Man. Maybe it was a cursed soap opera. I mean, they all are, kinda. That's true. This cursed soap opera is written by Warren Ellis once again, penciled by Ken Lashley. Hey, Lashley's back. Yay! Inked by Tom Wegrizin? 
I don't know how to say your last name, but it's fun to read, and colored by Joe Roses. And we open right where we left off. Kitty has the soul sword drawn, Shrill is there trying to kill Kitty, and Kurt, who's really Grave Moss, is trying to convince Kitty to give him the sword. Now, while Shrill is an antagonist here, she isn't a villain. She's basically on the side of not having continual migraines and otherwise pretty morally neutral. So she just straight up points out, yeah, oh, you know, he's possessed, right? Like he's hella possessed. That's not your friend. I really appreciate that what would have been a four issue story is now a three issue story just because of one line of dialogue from one of the antagonists. Honestly, that line of dialogue is Shrill's main function in the story. Like that is the purpose she serves in terms of moving things forward. So Kitty asks Muir Isle Alexa to tell her what's up with the rest of the people on the island and what happened, and quickly finds out that, sure enough, Nightcrawler knocked everybody out and did so using magic, which is not typically a thing Nightcrawler has. And if that doesn't call for a rendition of Despacito, I don't know what does. Triggered presumably by Amazon's lax privacy standards, Grave Moss now revealed, decides there's no reason not to just chew the scenery at his villainy best. You maggots! A little girl and a crippled witch? Stop me? <laughs> I'll take the sword from you, and I'll cut your skin off with it! It's a weird phrasing as far as that. You know, you talk about, you know, peeling someone's skin off or carving someone's You don't really talk about, like, cutting it off. It's not like fingers. I think it's kind of his thing. If I recall correctly, he actually mentions cutting somebody's skin off, like, again later. Maybe he doesn't know what skin is. Maybe he's confusing it with something else. That could be. He seems pretty confused in general. Well, Kitty says fuck this and phases away as Shrill and Grave Moss throw magic at each other. And she tries to figure out what to do, which takes us into a truly gratuitous Wolverine tie-in. I should note, by the way, that when we say magic in the majority of contexts in this, and we're not clearly referring to Ileana Rasputin, we're, we're just talking about, like, lowercase with a C. Magic. They're not, you know, tossing Kitty's dead girlfriend back and forth. That would be awkward. Anyway, Kitty's not thinking about that because she's thinking about that time when she first joined the X-Men and Wolverine, in the Danger Room, taught her Krav Maga, the Israeli Mossad's custom martial art, by beating up a bunch of very strange-looking training dummies, which incidentally is what's on the cover. It's Logan, out of uniform, elbowing the big pillow chest of a dude with a metal round head with no face. So, you remember the DC monkey rule? No. Where someone discovered that comics with, with monkeys on them sold a certain amount more, and so there was pressure to put monkeys on a bunch of covers. This was, this was like the Silver Age. This was way back. Okay. Yeah, so that but Wolverine. That but Wolverine. So this is weird, because Kitty does end up using Krav Maga to fight possessed Nightcrawler, but she has ninja training. From the same guy, from Logan. She could just use that, and that would be fine. I can only assume that Warren Ellis had just been reading about Krav Maga and thought it was awesome and wanted to write it into a story. It was kind of like when Piers Anthony had like a full quarter of the last bio of his Space Tyrant book just be about kidney dialysis because he'd been going through kidney dialysis and wanted to write about it. It's really oh, no, I thought he was. I thought he was researching it for something else. Maybe that, but either way, it was out of place there and it's out of place here. Look, three quarters of Piers Anthony's fiction is basically him going through whatever he read about in the last week and finding a way to make puns about it. Yeah, well, basically, basically that. Anyway, Kitty uses her Krav Maga, which we just found out she apparently knows, to beat the crap out of the possessed Nightcrawler. So Nightcrawler, which is to say Grave Moss, grabs some of Kurt's swords, and they have a big sword fight. Hooray! Grave Moss also manages to get back, you know, Kurt's memory of using swords, because those are skills that the body has, not that the mind has, which, does that make sense? You're, you're the one with, with any kind of um, neuropsych background. It kind of does, because your procedural memory tends to be less affected by retrograde amnesia than your event memory. Uh, it's kind of like how in the first Resident Evil movie, Alice can kick a whole bunch of ass, even though she doesn't really know anything. You're saying that neurologically, possession works like retrograde amnesia. Let's call it close enough. Sure, why not? Kitty is having none of this, and this is another bit of dialogue that I think is spot on by Ellis. Let me guess. 
When you possessed Kurt, you gained his knowledge, too. So you're going to chop up the skinny little Jewish girl with the big, bad sword, right? Because, you know, she's all on her own, right? No one around to save her from the bad old wizard guy squatting in her best friend's body. She's trapped in here with you. She can't win. Just a little girl. Jerk. I'm an X-Man. And you're trapped in here with me. Okay, so I know that line is totally stolen from Watchmen, but God, I love Ellis's Kitty Pride so much. He's, she's very, very Claremonty in a glorious fashion. Look, some, some lines become standards for a reason. Seriously. So, yeah, they have a sword fight, but thankfully Shrill and Daytripper, who's actually fine from falling off a cliff, show up to do magic-y distraction, and Kitty remembers the main thing the sword does. Apparently, Ellis does as well. So she stabs Kurt through the chest, which just depossesses him. It forces Grave Moss out, and Grave Moss is defeated and helpless. And topless. He expresses his displeasure in what sort of become his signature style. Kill dead dead! Eat your eyes! Cut your skin off! That's not how it works, man. Oh, but I guess that's that line I was thinking of. So Amanda convinces Kitty to let Amanda bond with a soul sword to keep it safe, saying that don't worry, it was never part of Ilyana, it was never part of your friend, it was just a tool that she used, it had nothing to do with her identity. <laughs> Bullshit! I guess we just have to go with it, and honestly, this is the direction continuity kind of takes with this specific little bit, because going forward, the soul sword is going to be a lot more tied to Limbo and to Limbo's magics, with a C, than it is going to be to Ilyana. It's not until Ilyana actually comes back, until she's actually resurrected, sort of, in Ex Infernus, that the Soul Sword has a whole lot to do with her personally. Now, between those two times, Amanda's going to take on a lot of magic's external trappings, mostly an homage to her, including her code name, which I think pretty well counters the idea that the soul sword isn't fundamentally attached to Liana or that Limbo isn't. I mean, I sort of, the, the three of them were very clearly and were very explicitly one symbiotic system. And I think that even with Liana herself out of the picture, there's still things that largely derive from her. Agreed. Yeah. Well, Amanda, when she does get the sword, immediately uses it to murder Grave Moss. Aw. I mean, he was terrible, but he was fun. And then, in the last page of the story, we get a, an extremely abrupt Poochie was killed on his way back to his home planet style reveal as a whole bunch of captions tell us what happened next. Yeah, so Amanda gives Margali the sword, and it turns out Margali was manipulating her the entire time, and this puts Margali in one of the high powerful points on the winding way, and it puts Amanda in front of her, and it means that Margali's now got the sword and she's going to use it to kill everyone, so presumably she's going to kill Amanda, but we're just going to forget that. So, um, that's unfortunate. Although, thankfully, Alice will revisit that whole thing. It's not just a dropped plot point, at least it does go somewhere. So, that's Warren Ellis's first Excalibur story. His run is widely considered to be the third definitive Excalibur run after Claremont and then Davis. And it's a weird start. It's a very weird start. It's a weird start, I think, largely because he's playing with someone else's toys and he's doing it very clumsily. When he's been on Excalibur for a bit longer, he's going to start bringing in his own pieces and his own elements. And I think he's much, much stronger at that point. He's much stronger even when he's going back to older stuff after he's established that status quo. I completely agree, yeah. But that said, for me, this story was such a relief just to see these characters written, for the most part, like themselves, to see them written consistently. Like, we've had to- To see them written by the same person for more than two issues. Uh, yeah, that. I mean, we've had some good stuff in the interim Excalibur era. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying it's all terrible, because it's not. But the book just kept wildly careening back and forth from one style to the next, and now it finally feels like it has a consistent voice. With that, I, you know, I think that's a pretty good closing note for Warren's first arc, and that brings us to- you listeners, um, and you, as always, have questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, There's a cycle to fans eventually becoming writers. We've seen X-Men writers who grew up with and are nostalgic for characters and plots from the Silver Age, later for the Claremont era, and recently for 90s X-Men, including the cartoon, and how that's seeped into their work. Soon enough, we'll start getting more and more writers who grew up with the original X-Men movies, Morrison's X-Men, and the other 2000s X-Men stories. How do you think that'll affect comics in the future? 
That's a really good question. And of course, we're just going to have to wildly speculate, but that's fun, so let's do it. Well, first of all, I don't think that's the future. I think we're seeing that right now. I would agree. Specifically, I think Morrison's run has its thematic fingers in like everything the X-Line is doing right now. I mean, yeah. a lot of that is is Jonathan Hickman, but a lot of the themes we're seeing are so very Morrison. I mean, right now it's all about the larger role of mutants in the world. It's about evolution, both literal and metaphorical. It's about distinct mutant cultures. Like, the current era seems very much a sequel to Morrison's run in a lot of ways. Well, and it's sweeping, sweeping paradigm shifts on the scale that Morrison made them. That's true. I think that was a lot of what Morrison's run was about, is not just the actual plot elements, but the fact that he just took all of X-Men and just threw it on the ground and built something new out of it. And I mean, if you look at the people who are coming and writing, I mean, I think this is to an extent a thing that we can just date is that there are more and more people who are writing X books who are around our age. So who would have been in their late teens when the Morrison run was coming out? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people of our generation didn't necessarily grow up with Morrison, but we were still very much readers when it hit. So it was a big deal. Now, what complicates this is that while with previous generations of writers, you largely see folks who grew up on the specific thing they grew up on. The thing that happened very shortly after Morrison and and around then was increasing availability of digital comics and increasing collections and newly released collections of older comics, which means that the odds that somebody who grew up on the Morrison run just grew up on that stuff are much lower. So while you have someone, if you have someone who comes into writing X-Men in the early 70s, they've just got the Silver Age to draw from and to, to imprint on. And, you know, someone who comes into it in the, the early early to mid-80s really just has the Silver Age and Claremont and really in, in recent years will, will, have, will have grown up with Claremont. At this point, anyone who came in with Morrison would have made the jump from getting the Morrison books to having access to the Essentials collections, for instance, to having access to those Marvel Masterworks collections. Actually, those came out way before the, the Morrison run started. Um, but... And then to having access to digital comics and to Marvel Unlimited. Like, we think of these eras as, as ones that are distinct by what was coming out, but you've got to bear in mind that the, tech, the technology, the means of distribution, make every bit as much a difference. It's sort of like the fact that, that the cartoon is a lot of people's definitive X-Men, more people's definitive X-Men, just because more people saw it than were reading the comics. Yeah, no, I think that makes a whole lot of sense. And further, I feel like the 2000s was the first era where there wasn't one general feel to the era, you know? Like, the 70s and 80s were basically Claremont and Simonson, so they all felt of a kind. The 90s had all kinds of writers, but the 90s had a very, very distinct feel in general. Like, you can tell a book is a 90s book. But in the 2000s, you had all kinds of different voices taking X-Men in all kinds of different directions. I mean, Chuck Austin's run, say, and Chris Claremont's Extreme X-Men run and Morrison's run felt nothing like each other. Yeah, I mean, you had an era where, for the first time in a very long time, Marvel was pulling really top writing talent, just people people who were incredibly high profile at the time, after a very, very long slump. Like, I remember it being a huge, huge deal that Grant Morrison and Neil Gaiman were writing for Marvel in, in 2000, because they had been very, very strictly DC-associated at that point. Oh, yeah, seriously. Like, and remember how the last volume of The um, the Invisibles got massively delayed just b- basically because Morrison jumped ship? Uh-huh. But I also think that means that you're not going to see all of the elements or even all of the major elements from the 2000s necessarily have a long shadow. Like, Morrison, sure, but no offense to Joe Casey's run, I don't know that we're going to see a lot of that really come into play very much later because people remember Morrison's run. As far as the movies, you got to talk about the movies, but... They honestly haven't aged all that well, and the parts of them that are so very 2000s, I think, are the parts that have aged least well. Like, the X-Men comics haven't responded to the movies in nearly the same way the Avengers comics have responded to the Avengers movies, becoming much more like them. Yeah, I think... Well, well, the X-Men comics tried to become like the X-Men movies for a while, and I think some of that is is that they're they're not Marvel movies. Like, the, the Avengers comics, I assume that there's got to be a degree of fiat when it comes to make this resemble the movies. 
Like there's there's a degree of, of cross-pollination that's not really possible when you've got IP in two separate houses. But with the, the, the X-Men comics did try and it didn't go super well. And honestly, the bits from the movies that I see people calling back to and that I see people going back to are the ones that best evoked the comics. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So in summation, we don't know how it's going to go, but I don't know, maybe kind of like that. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, could Tarot of the Hellions manifest characters off of trading cards, or does her power only work on tarot cards? Oh man, I wish, and there's a great waiting for the trade strip about that. But my understanding is that her powers are specific not only to tarot cards, but to her specific tarot deck, which we know, which we've seen is not a standard tarot deck, specifically one she inherited from her grandmother and that she's had all her life. So it's never quite made clear, though, whether that's because they're object-specific powers like Silver Samurais, or if it's just because that specific tarot deck is the set of symbolism in which she's most fluent. If it's the latter, then I assume that somewhere out there there's probably a universe where she's a huge nerd and therefore can use Magic the Gathering cards. Oh, man. Shivan Dragon on your ass. Well, unless she gets real into, like, unhinged and unglued. Oh, man. Cheaty face on your ass. Wah-wah. And we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come um, with acknowledgement from a range of fictional characters and concepts on the show. Today, the microphone goes to... Shrill. That accursed soul sword has been sheathed. So the name's kind of a misnomer, then? Quiet, you. And I am at long last left in peace to use my metal eyeball to perform ambiguously witchy stuff. Ponytailed Secret Service bodyguard guy, give me some candles and a dagger and... What fresh agony is this? Oh no, my orichalcum's spleen is racked with pain. According to my other amulet, the source is... Sean Golly and his orichalcum slide whistle? Golly, you must sheathe that whistle. For even aside from my pain, it will surely corrupt you. And... Blah! Oh, my moon silver floating ribs! They're like floating chainsaws in my torso! Why? Oh, my other other amulet tells me Brent Gregory Shelby's moon silver plunger is responsible? Why do you even have that? Rubber would make so much more sense, but. Yeah! Fine, that's it. I'll come back to this comfortable bed and my collection of attractive bodyguards later. It's teleporting time. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we'll check in with an old friend and his tiny jorts as Sauron makes his X-Men Unlimited debut. Oh, damn it. I forgot to talk about the Thor book again. Um, yeah, so I... Co-wrote a Thor book with three other very awesome people, Aaron Stewart on, Yun Ha Lee, and Brian Keane. It's called Thor Metal Gods. It is, I believe, going to be out when this episode comes out, maybe, or, or just about to come out from Serial Box. I'll drop a link in the visual companion. It's audio first. I think it's going to be available in, in print, too, at that point, or at least as an ebook. Not dead certain, but I'm supposed to be talking it up more than I actually have been. Sorry about that, Serial Box. Don't tell them.